Morning. Okay, well, um, so when Randy let me know that he was going to not be available for this Sunday morning, he asked if I wanted to do the message, and I had just been learning some things that were um, astounding to me, I guess, or had an impact on my thinking, and so I said, sure, I can share that stuff. And uh, so what I didn't realize is how deep it went, and so I was trying to put all this stuff together, and 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 it's all about the temple in God's house, and I wasn't, you know, the more I dug on it, the more I found, and, and there's this things was really cool, and this thing's really cool, and have you seen, like, on the shows when they find the, the conspiracy theorist basement, and he's got the map with the red lines going all over the place, and he kind of looks crazy, that's how I felt in my mind as I was trying to put this together. And so I probably have missed things that are important, and maybe, hopefully you get across why this matters to me. I'll try to sum it up in the end. But um, part of it is just an understanding of um, how God works and worked and works in us that was new to me. And so that's what it's about. So you may be wondering... Um, how does the temple fit in with the sermon series, Phanerosis? And um, at first I didn't really think it was going to, but as I looked into it more, I realized, yeah, it does, because the sermon series is about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and here's what we're going to see that actually fits. So we'll get to it. Okay, do you remember as a kid, anybody have this happen? You ran into a teacher outside of school. And if you're real young, you're like, what? They actually have a life outside of school? I thought they lived at the school. And um, so, you know, you'd run into Miss Jenkins at Walmart one day, and suddenly she's a real person, and she's not just at the school. And so your realm of school and rest of life overlapped suddenly there. And uh, that's not really a good illustration, but it kind of gets the idea of where we're going to start with. So a temple in all the various forms that we're going to look at was a place where heaven and earth would overlap and uh, in a specific way. And so to help us make sure that we're all on the same page here, I wanted to find heaven and earth. And so the, pot in the Bible, um, and I apologize, a lot of this is stuff that Randy has covered And so you're going to hear some things, some concepts you've heard before. But the Bible talks about, um, in a lot of times, three different heavens. And so we have the sky, that's heaven. And then we have what's beyond the sky, or outer space, or the cosmos, that was a heaven. And then there's God's realm, where he lives, his invisible uh, realm. His home, the place where he dwells in unapproachable light, He's surrounded by his divine counsel and the creatures like cherubim and seraphim and the rest of his spiritual family. That's heaven. And so earth is a little easier for us to understand. Earth is human realm, and we get that because we we see it, we hear it. Um, It's the place that we live that's full of water and dirt and plants and animals and people. And... uh, 
while we know from Scripture that God is everywhere present, it's being omnipresent, he is, his presence fills the universe, right? We sung about that. But there are still times in Scripture where we can see that he's there in a different way, in a more specific way, and visible way oftentimes. And so that's what a temple was a place that, where that could happen. Um, but you may think of a temple, you may think of maybe the Jewish temple, whatever that means in your mind, or maybe, I don't know, a Buddhist temple or a Mormon temple, but more, there's all kinds of different temples. And even in Scripture, um, because we're specifically talking about where God's realm and the human realm overlaps, there can be temples that don't look like what we think of temples. And so what I really want to do is go back through Scripture and history and talk about some of those And so I apologize if uh, I get into this too much, but there's a lot. And this is what I was talking about as I looked into it. And there's so much where you look at this. And so let's start with the first one, the first type of temple, and that is Eden. And uh, so very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 tells us that God created humans in his image or as his representatives. They were given a mandate to multiply. They were to create more humans and fill the earth. They were given responsibility for the animals and to work and care for the garden where God placed them. This is Genesis 1 and 2. We learned through the rest of Genesis 2 and 3 that God was present in a special way at Eden. So we have the world that he created. We have the region of Eden. And then there was the garden in the center of Eden. And so there is kind of this stage of uh, God's presence there. And as we learn through the tragedy of 3 and 4, even though uh, we learn through that story that God walked in the evenings with Adam and Eve in the garden, and so he came there and was physically present with them. And then even after they were removed from Eden, God was still there talking to him. He talked to his son. He has a conversation with Cain and warns him about sin. And then when Cain, after he's murdered his brother, and he's exiled, Genesis 4.16 says, And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he left the Lord's presence there at Eden. So Eden and the garden there were the first place we see where God's specific presence overlapped with earth. And it was... The rest of the story of the Bible is basically God wanting to bring humans back into his family and back into that relationship and restore that so that we're like Eden where we are, you know, Adam and Eve were in a way they were priests because they were the ones who were in God's image and they were representing God to the rest of creation. And so the rest of the Bible is bringing us back to that. So next stop we're going to meet Abram, or Abraham, and his descendants. Abram and Isaac have their own encounters with God. They meet God uh, occasionally in a face-to-face type of way, and this is where the sidetracks and bunny trails are easy to come in because what does it mean that you know God showed up in the angel of the Lord and he had conversations with him? But that's, not, that's a different, different sermon. We're going to go and look at Jacob. Jacob's also known as Israel. He's on a journey 
when he stops for the night and has a vision. In Genesis 28. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and laid down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I wasn't even aware of it. But he also was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. And the next morning Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it up as a he set it upright as a memorial pillar. And he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, or we might say Bethel, which means the house house of God, although it was previously called Luz. So he named it Bethel. He had this vision of of angels going up and down the stairway. And, you know, old translations would say a ladder, but that's not right. It's a stairway. And it's, it's probably an image of... And uh, what they, what he would have been familiar with as the temples and the people around him was a ziggurat. And they had stairs. They were a stepped thing, and they had stairs going up. And at the top of that was the Lord talking to him. And uh, so he names it Bethel, which literally means God's house. This is the same word that's used often throughout the Old Testament to refer to the temple, the house of the Lord or God's house. So there at Bethel, Jacob encounters Yahweh. And he knows this is a special place. Later, in Genesis 35, God tells Jacob to settle there with his family and all who were with him. So Jacob goes back. He builds a congregation of his family and his servants, and they live there. They dwell there. And Jacob builds an altar to the Lord there. This was not a temple to the Lord as we think of it, but it was a place on the mountain as a type of temple where God interacted with Jacob in a specific way, and Jacob recognized it and named it as such. And one thing I'd like to point out is, and you're going to see this repeated throughout, is God tells Jacob, I am with you, I will not leave you. And you're going to see that throughout as we look at God speaking to people from the temple and about the temple as he says, I am with you. So even after you leave this place, I am with you. And so keep that in mind as we look at this. Now things get even more interesting with Moses. First, Moses meets Yahweh on Mount Sinai. He's herding his goats, and he runs across what we call the burning bush. But it was the angel of the Lord in a bush that was on fire but didn't consume, was not consumed. He's told this is holy ground that you're standing on. Take off your sandals because this is a special place. And uh, there at that burning bush from the angel of the Lord, 
he receives his mission to lead the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. So in verses 11 and 12 of Exodus 3, we read this. Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. So guess what? In Exodus 19, it says this, Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So God's promise there was fulfilled. It was his proof that, yes, he is the one who's brought them out of Egypt and was giving Moses the ability to do this because he's back at Sinai. This time, he's not alone with just sheep. He's now shepherding an entire nation, and they're there, and they're going to meet with the Lord. All right, so Exodus 19. Moses and the Israelites encounter God on Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Okay, some things I want to point out that we'll come back to later. The treasure for, for God among, from all the nations of the earth is his people. It's not silver and gold and all the things that get brought to the temple later when Solomon builds the actual temple. His treasure is the people of Israel, his people. And um, again, he says here, sorry, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And so... Israel has priests that serve in the temple and mediate between God and man and do the sacrifices, but the whole nation is going to be priests because they're the ones that show the rest of the world what God is like and mediate, you know, brings them into that relationship where that's what they're supposed to be. So continuing on. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the, people, the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak to you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful, do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. 
He told them, get ready for the third day, and until then, abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. Shortly after that, God tells Moses to come up the mountain again, and this time he's to bring the priests, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders. But even then, only Moses could come near. And then something unexpected happened. Exodus 24, 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. And then, after this, God calls Moses further up to meet with him while the others stay behind. Verse 15. Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. So the Lord appeared as fire, and there was thick smoke covering the mountain. And... If you're familiar with Old Testament, some of this might sound familiar to you from other places. But the uh, smoke is often represents God's glory, and we see it as he, in the temple later. But uh, glory is the Hebrew word chabod or chabad. I'm not a Hebrew reader, but that's what I read. And <clears throat> from what I understand, I'm, that's how to pronounce it. But it means, like literally, it means heaviness or weightiness. And it's a symbol of God's presence. And so this thick cloud would come down and it would prevent people from going places. But also notice that there were boundaries of the mountain that people were not supposed to cross. And then certain the priests went up to a certain place. And even beyond that, only Moses could continue on. So again, we have that same idea uh, that we saw in Eden and where there's um, outer boundaries that as you go further inside, you get to more holy place. And we'll see that again later. So after all this, God gives Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the mobile temple that the Israelites carry with them in their desert journey. It's a tent structure, and it has a courtyard. You've probably seen pictures of this. If I was really clever, I would have put one up on the screen for you. Um, but it's a, it's a tent, basically, uh, with a courtyard around it, also made out of kind of tent-type stuff. And in that courtyard was, was where the priest worked, and there was a place for sacrifice on the altars. Then inside the tent itself was the holy place, and then inside of that was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And in there was where they put the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what that is. And <clears throat> only the priest could enter to the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and only on appointed times. So 
God gave Moses all these instructions, and it was very specific on how to build it and what kind of materials to make it all out of. And they would take it all down, carry it with them, set it back up. And after they completed setting it up, God's glory filled it, similar to how he filled Mount Sinai. So from Exodus 40, verse 34. This is from the first time they set it up. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember his weightiness, heaviness. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. So we see God guiding Israel through the wilderness with his presence in the form of fire and his glory in the cloud. Okay, centuries later, we're now at Solomon, King Solomon. He's the third king of Israel. He built a permanent temple for the Lord. Its basic design kind of mimicked the tabernacle. It had a courtyard, and it had the temple itself, and an inside room called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And that, again, is where they put the Ark of the Covenant. And... uh, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but inside the Holy of Holies, there were also, it's unclear to me if it was statues or the cherubim were actually there, depending on what part you read, but the cherubim were are spiritual beings, not angels that we think of them. They have different descriptions, but they have like the face of a lion and the face of a man and multiple wings, and um, they are, they're kind of God's, Uh, throne guard, I guess you could say. And so they're there in the Holy of Holies, either as a statue or actually there, um, depending on how you read it. Probably both, honestly, because as we see throughout Scripture, things on earth are often a shadow of the realities in heaven, and that includes the temple. So anyway, so Solomon builds the temple. They dedicate the temple, and they carry the ark into the Holy of Holies, And this is what happens from 1 Kings. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 6. Then the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and they placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the Ark, forming a canopy over the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the temple's main room, the holy place, but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue in their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. And there again we see the glory of the Lord is such a thick and real thing in the form of a cloud that they can't even continue their service in there. And um, before we continue on, I want Isaiah, as that song uh, we sang earlier, is based on Isaiah 6. He has a vision when he's called and, uh, of the temple, and here it is from Isaiah 6, verse 1. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. 
He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I think Isaiah's reaction is a good one. He says, then I, then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among the people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. So Isaiah has a vision of the temple and the Lord there, and the train of his robe is filling the temple, um, and the glory of his Lord of the Lord is filling the temple with smoke. And so just wanted to show you that that is a common thing, and it continues throughout the Old Testament. The problem is, uh, the glory of the Lord later leaves the temple. Ezekiel has a vision of it, because the people are not following God. They're not doing what he wanted them to do, and they're worshiping other gods. And so Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And then the temple is destroyed in 586 by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He lays siege to Jerusalem, and uh, it's gone. It's just destroyed. And so for Israel as a nation, not only are they carried away in captivity, but the temple is gone. The temple was the center for them of religious life and what it meant to be a people because they had Yahweh, the God, living there among them at the temple, and now the temple's gone. They're scattered. And so it seems like hope is gone, and... What in the world is God doing in this story where he's supposed to be bringing people back to him and back to a relationship with him? Well, the prophet Haggai, there's a lot to say about this, but I want to go with Haggai because this is actually the one that got me first looking into this. So Haggai 2, 1 through 9. Haggai's a prophet. He says, Then on October 17th of that same year, The Lord sent another message through the prophet Haggai. Say this to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Okay, so a little backstory first. The Babylonians conquered, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Under the Persians, things got a little bit better, and the Jewish people were allowed to go back to the land and start rebuilding the temple. But it's a lot smaller, and the people who remember the temple, when they looked at it, they wept because they knew it was nothing like it. And uh, then they have a dedication for it, and unlike the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord does not fill it. And uh, so Zerubbabel is the the guy that the Persians put in charge of Israel. And then you've got um, Joshua, or Joshua, he's the high priest. And so this message is for them. And the guy continues, Does anyone remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land, and now get to work, for I am with you, 
says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. For this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring bring peace. The Lord of heaven's armies has spoken. So surprisingly, Haggai says there's greater glory coming to this temple still. And uh, this is where prophecy in the Old Testament gets interesting. You've heard Randy talk about both and and how prophecy can be both about something now and something in the future. And this is, I think, one of those cases. I've also heard it described as, uh, from a certain viewpoint, when you're telling somebody something, maybe you're looking at a mountain range far off, and there's foothills between you and the mountain range, and you're describing what you're seeing over there. Well, the foothills and the mountains look the same. Turn around from a little different perspective, and now you see that the foothills and the mountains are different. And so sometimes prophecy works that way. You see, you know, something now and something further away in the same in the same prophecy. And so, you know, I've heard the the, the person I was listening to that brought this to my attention said, you know, basically this was fulfilled by Jesus because Jesus came into the temple. And I think there's truth and reality to that. I also think there's more to it. And um, But, you know, that actual temple that they built there, that physical temple, um, the Spirit never came and filled again in the same way. So when we get to the New Testament, um, you know, hundreds of years later, that temple, it's the same temple, but it's just been, it's undergone a major renovation by um, Herod. He was an attempt to build goodwill with the Jewish people, keep them under control. So he he remodeled the temple or renovated it, added on to it, and it was this grand, glorious-looking thing. It was really should have been probably one of the wonders of the you know seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, <clears throat> I just don't think it lasted long enough <laughs> for people to really get the idea. Um, so when we pick up the story with Jesus, I think that's been around forty years, something like that, that since that remodeling has been done. And um, still, it's just this building, and God's presence is not there. But then God does something unexpected again, at least for those not paying attention to the prophets. God the Son takes on human flesh. He's born as a baby. And so now Jesus, he's God in human flesh, so he's now like a walking, talking temple, because God is here in this specific in this specific spot. And but Jesus goes into Herod's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. It's Herod's temple is what it gets called now after he remodeled it. And so, he, in a way, and not in a way, in a reality, God has entered that temple again. And um, so that's pretty amazing to me. And that. That kind of threw me for a loop, but he was there as a baby. Eight days after he was born, Jesus entered the temple. And listen to this. This is from Luke 2. 
eight days after he was born, his parents take him to the temple because it's what you're supposed to do. They're good Jewish people following God. He goes to the temple. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon recognizes in Jesus that he is the Messiah and that he is the glory. And so that we have that there. We have this throughout the rest of the New Testament too. The glory had entered the temple again in a different way. But Jesus was the glory and presence of God, and he went with them wherever he went. Here's some New Testament authors just to go with that point. So from John 1, 14. So the word became human, and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And get this, when he says, the word became human and made his home among us, made his home, literally, the literal translation is he tabernacled among us. He built his tabernacle among us. And so that is Jesus. He is the temple among us. Colossians 1.19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And I've got some more that I didn't write down on my paper, but I want to read to you. Okay, this goes with the next. So, so God, Jesus was, was the glory of God. And as he's talking with the disciples, you guys are probably familiar with this. Jesus came and he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? This is from Matthew 16. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which is rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So keep that in mind about Jesus building his church. We'll get to that later, but I wanted to cover that because that's something Jesus said while he was still alive. Of course, in Matthew uh, 27, the crucifixion, I'm going to skip ahead there, 27 verse 50. So as Jesus dies, and then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, as he released his spirit and died, at that moment in the sanctuary of the temple, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom, the earth shook, rocks split apart, 
So the, the holy of holies, the curtain that separated that out from everyone else that prevented us from accessing God was torn in two as a representation that now through the death and eventually resurrection of Jesus, we have access to God. We have access to the holy of holies. Okay, so after his death and resurrection, Jesus goes back to the Father in a cloud, right? And that sound familiar? A cloud in glory. So now Jesus was the temple here on earth. The temple system is gone because he's replaced it. But so what's the temple now that he's not here? Well, remember he said he would build his church on the rock. So let's look at this in Acts 2, 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So just like Moses saw on the mountain or the Israelites at the tabernacle, fire appears and signifies the Lord's presence and that this is the temple, this is the place he's going to dwell. But it's not on a building, it's on every believer. At that time, in that room, that was every Christian on the planet. And so every believer is a representation of God here. He dwells in us. So the followers of Jesus are filled with the Spirit at that moment, and together they become the temple. And so that is how uh, this temple thing ties into manifestations of the Holy Spirit, this sermon series, because as the Christians together become the temple, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some more. Ephesians 2, this is Paul, verse Ephesians 2.19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. For through, through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Remember, Jesus said he would build the church on Peter and the apostles. And we see that here with Paul. He's building the church, but he calls us a temple. Together, we become the temple. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus. Uh, Let's go back one uh, chapter in Ephesians 1, verse 22. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. And so this ties it together because Christ was the temple. We are the body of Christ. And so therefore, that's another example of us being the temple. And Christ has authority, and he fills everything everywhere with himself. So again, we see God filling the universe with himself, but there's also specific uh, places where his presence is more... Uh, it's different. First Peter, so speaking of Peter, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. 
Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please, please God. So we are the holy priest. Just like Israel is to be a nation of priests, we are priests now. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So God takes this seriously. He, he, his glory is something to be taken serious. And um, you know, anyone who destroys his temple, he will destroy. So we know in the end that our enemy will meet his just end, and we can take hope in that. How about 2 Corinthians 6.14? Often growing up, you, you would hear this one in terms of you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. And while it's true, you know, it covers this, um, there's more. I also heard later, um, you shouldn't go into business with a non-Christian. So let's, let's read this and see what you think. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers or be yoked, if you're familiar with the King James. That's the word that's there. Don't be yoked. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil or Belial? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among the unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so, yes, we need to marry and partner in business with people that have our same beliefs or are going the same direction as us. But there's more to it. This is about um, you know, being a part of the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of darkness with those around us. And the word there for the devil is, is actually Belial. Um, and that literally means like worthless. And so Christ is the ultimate worthy thing, and we're not to partner with things that are worth, worthless and do the things that are worthless, worthless because we are the temple of God. God is in us, and we are a place where people can come and see, have a relationship with God. We can introduce them there as priests in his kingdom. And so if we are, you know, going with the culture and, and with those around us instead of pointing them to God, then we're partnering with the worthless things. So looking forward, I mean, the eternal kingdom of God, what happens? Because if we're the temple here on earth, what happens in, in eternity and in, in uh, the new Jerusalem, the new earth, or heaven as people think of it? So in eternity, there is no temple as heaven and earth will be reunited at creation and God himself and Jesus will be our temple. So it's interesting because during the captivity, Ezekiel saw a vision of a new temple. And the angel that was giving him the tour had a measuring stick and said, go measure it. And it wasn't Solomon's temple. It was perfectly square and it was much bigger. And it was unlike anything that has been built as yet or will be built. And, um, but 
the thing that is interesting, I mean, it's all interesting, but what I want to focus on is coming out of that temple as a stream, and it starts out as a small trickle, and it grows bigger and deeper and wider until it's a, it's a deep river. And the river flows into the Dead Sea from the temple, which, by the way, is geographically impossible in my understanding. But it flows to the... So it's not... I don't think it's describing something supposed to be physical. The, this river flows to the, to the Dead Sea, and it brings life back to the Dead Sea. And all along where the river is, there's trees growing on either side of it, and um, it brings fish, and it makes the Dead Sea like, you know, like other seas. And so it sounds like living water, doesn't it? So a little curious about that. What, what is that temple? Is that something? Well, I think in Revelation we get the fulfillment of that. So in Revelation 21 and on into 22. So John, um, one of Jesus' disciples, he is being given a vision of uh, heaven and of things that are going to happen in the future. And here at the end of it all, here's what he sees. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels. And the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on each of them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Jumping ahead to 22. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. Its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then continue on, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads. And so we see the river flowing from the throne of God. There is no temple in eternity because we're there with God. He's there. There is no need for a temple. But we do have that river flowing from the throne. And you have tree of life, multiple trees of life on each side along this river. And they're used to heal the nations. And so that is what we have to look forward to. And again, it said, the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Back in uh, Haggai, it says, let me find that again. 
He says the nations will bring their treasures. And as we saw before, the treasures are God's people, not, the, not their wealth. And so that's why Haggai was also looking forward to this eternal temple of God and city of God, because he knew that God's people will be gathered there to him. Okay, so why does any of this matter? Um, what are some things to take away from it? And so one thing I wanted to point out to you is, let me pull it up here. Second Corinthians 3. So Moses spent time in the presence of God. We read this back. And when he was done with that presence of God, his face would literally be shining and radiating. It was so much it bothered people, and he actually had to wear a veil over it. And so let's read this in Second Corinthians 3. This is actually going to be from the CSB instead of the NLT. So it might sound a little different than what you have if you're reading the NLT. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the spirit. So... Unlike Moses, we don't have to cover our faces. We can let the Lord's light shine and radiate from us to those around us. And uh, we have boldness to be able to enter in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> also, the uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the verses in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians uh, that talk about us being a temple together, and together we are the body of Christ. They're often they are those are specifically in a context of encouraging unity in the church, and um, after he talks about being a temple, and together we are the temple, it leads into a discussion of Christian living and what does it look like to be a Christian in a community of Christians and about submission to each other, and so because we are a temple, I think that's an encouragement to us to um, serve each other and 
not think of anybody better than anybody else. We're all parts and blocks of the same building, and we should be serving and submitting to each other. And then I want to go to Hebrews. This is the last thing. There we go. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You have come to the, to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he makes another promise. Once again I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures where we can look back and see your work throughout history, uh, how you have desired to have a relationship with people and bring us into your family and make us a part of your kingdom and what you're doing in the universe. And uh, we can see how even though we messed that up, you still pursued us and created spaces where we could approach you and, and uh have a relationship with you that was correct. And Father, I just praise you that through your son Jesus, we now, we don't have to do the sacrificial items. We can have a real relationship with you and the eternal one. And Father, through your spirit, we are growing to be more and more like you and transformed into your image more and more every day. And that together we are your temple. We are the place where you intersect with the world. And I just pray that we go through life, we realize that we have a responsibility to listen to you and to reflect you to those around us. And uh, just pray for uh, the rest of this day that um, you would be glorified and honored by our activities. It is your day. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.